Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr. And I'm Caitlin Andrachuk. And this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Today, we are looking into promising clinical trials regarding barosumab. We speak with Dr. Eric Immel, Associate Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, and Dr. Suzanne Marie Jean de Boer, Associate Professor of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Each presented research in March at the Endocrine Society's annual meeting in New Orleans, and we spoke with them there. But first, Caitlin has a research update for us. Barosimab is a humanized monoclonal antibody for fibroblast growth factor 23, which is a bone-derived hormone that regulates phosphate metabolism. FGF23 is a promising target in the treatment of patients with X-linked hypophosphatemia and tumor-induced osteomalacia. A recent endocrine reviews paper from Yuka Kinoshida and Seiji Fukumoto at the University of Tokyo Hospital and Tokushima University focuses on phosphate metabolism and describes FGF23-related hypophosphatemic diseases and discusses this new treatment option for patients. You can read this paper and related research studies published in the Journal of the Endocrine Society by clicking on the link under this episode at www.endocrine.org forward slash podcast. And now our interview with Drs. Immel and Jean de Boer. First, let me share the titles of your two abstracts. Dr. Emil, your abstract is titled, Barosimab resulted in greater improvement in rickets than conventional therapy in children with X-linked hypophosphatemia. And Dr. Jean de Boer, your abstract is titled, Barosimab improves the biochemical, skeletal, and clinical symptoms of tumor-induced osteomalacia syndrome. So before we dive into your findings, Dr. Jean de Boer, maybe you can tell me a little bit about what is Barosimab and what is it currently approved for? Barosimab is a fully human monoclonal antibody that binds to and neutralizes FGF23. And it's clinically approved for the treatment of X-linked hypophosphatemia in children and adults in the United States currently. And so that obviously is going to bring up my next question. I'll aim this one at Dr. Immel, since your study focused on the effectiveness in improving rickets in children with X-linked hypophosphatemia. So let's just go ahead and ask, what is X-linked hypophosphatemia? And then in light of your study, what is its relationship to rickets? X-linked hypophosphatemia is the most common inherited form of rickets and the most common inherited form of hypophosphatemia. And it's an unusual disease because it's inherited in an X-linked dominant manner. And that family history can be useful when you're sorting out families. When patients have X-linked hypophosphatemia or XLH, they generate high levels of a protein called FGF23, and that is the mechanism by which they get hypophosphatemia, and ultimately skeletal deformities of which rickets is part of that. So with X-linked phosphatemia, I know it's not necessarily common based on what you said, but do we have an understanding of what the prevalence is? The estimated prevalence is somewhere around 1 in 20,000 to 1 in 25,000 patients. And up until now, there's been some current conventional therapy for treating rickets in these patients. What was the conventional therapy? And then how does barosimab compare with that? 
Well, because the consequences of excess FGF23 are hypophosphatemia and impairments in vitamin D activation to its most active form, for many years, the conventional therapy has been treatment with multiple doses a day of high doses of phosphate salts combined with active vitamin D analogs such as calcitriol or alpha-calcidol. And was a conventional therapy before, was it just not really welcome? Did it leave too much um, that we had to sort of fill in the blanks? So we need something more. It wasn't satisfactory in some way. So there are several limitations and also variability in response for conventional therapy. For example, one limitation is you have to remember to take a medicine multiple times a day. But also, patients often have gastrointestinal side effects of the phosphate doses. And long term, there are some risks of complications such as hyperparathyroidism causing hypercalcemia, as well as of nephrocalcinosis with treatment with conventional therapy. Patients receiving conventional therapy uh, require a lot of monitoring. Uh, including a lot of laboratory monitoring that's largely for safety, uh, even more than for efficacy. And the response, for example, in terms of straightening the legs in patients with rickets as they're growing or of um, improving their growth in children, again, is highly variable. And most XLH patients are ending up, frankly, short as adults. And many of them require orthopedic surgeries to try to correct leg deformities. Mm. Not everybody, but it's a not uncommon procedure. And so when you used barosumab in your clinical trial, what are some of the improvements that you found? This trial was a randomized controlled trial. And so patients were randomized to either continue their conventional therapy or to switch to treatment with barosumab. So patients had all been receiving conventional therapy prior to enrollment uh, in this trial. And during the course of this trial, our primary outcome was change in rickets as measured by something called the Radiographic Global Impression of Change Score, or scaling system. And it's a ordinal scale where negative values mean that your rickets is worsening and positive values mean that it's improving and a value of plus three would indicate complete healing. Hmm. So the primary outcome for this trial at week 40 of treatment was the difference between groups in the radiographic global impression of change uh, for the rickets severity. And at week 40, um, the value there for the mean was plus 1.9 for the barosumab-treated group and plus 0.8 in the conventional therapy group. And at week 64, these differences were maintained, uh, again, still with about twice as much improvement in the barosumab group as in the conventional therapy group. Dr. Jean DeBoer, your study focused on barosumab's effectiveness in treating patients with tumor-induced osteomalacia. Tell us about osteomalacia, how it's diagnosed, and its complications. Yeah, so tumor-induced osteomalacia is a chronic debilitating disorder. It's rare. The cause is excess FGF23 production by usually rare benign mesenchymal tumors. So these tumors ectopically produce FGF23. This results in phosphaturia and hypophosphatemia. It also results in a low 125-hydroxy vitamin D because the vitamin D can't be synthesized. Synthesized drops and the catabolism or the breakdown increases. So low phosphorus, low 125D, 
this will eventually result in bone fractures, bone pain, and then there's also a myopathy that accompanies this. So people can become debilitated to the point where they are wheelchair bound. So it's basically tumors make excess FGF23 that then result in bone demineralization and severe myopathy. So a lot of times tumor-induced osteomalacia, the cause of it goes unrecognized for many years. That average is about five years. And the reason it goes unrecognized is because physicians don't put together these symptoms of bone pain, bone fractures, myopathy, and debilitation. They don't think about ordering a serum phosphorus. So once someone clues in and orders a serum phosphorus, then usually the diagnosis goes pretty quickly. So these people present with hypophosphatemia, but you have to establish that the hypophosphatemia is because the kidney's not holding on to phosphorus because there's other causes of hypophosphatemia. Once you establish that the kidney's not holding on to phosphorus, there's excess uh, urinary phosphorus, then you look further and you want to see what the 125-hydroxyvitamin D is. If the 125-hydroxyvitamin D is low, because we know FGF23 decreases the synthesis of 125D, that combination of low phosphorus, high urine phosphorus, and low 125D makes you know that's an FGF23-mediated process. And if the person is presenting in adulthood, they're not presenting in childhood, they don't have bowed legs or other things that would make you think they have inherited rickets, but it's an acquired osteomalacia, then one of the things you need to entertain is tumor-induced osteomalacia and you need to find the tumor. And we do a number of different imaging studies, including octreotide scan, pentodotate scanning, to try to find the tumor. They're often small. They can be a centimeter, 1.5 centimeters, and they hide in different places. They can hide in the jaw. They can hide in the sinuses. They can hide in the extremities and the distal extremities. So finding them can be challenging. But once you find them and completely resect them, the patient is cured. All the metabolic abnormalities reverse. And it feels like a Lazarus phenomenon sometimes. Take someone who can barely walk in a wheelchair, you resect their tumor, and you remineralize their bones with some phosphorus and some calcitriol, and they end up doing very well. The problem we run into is when we can't find the tumor, or when the tumor is unable to be completely resected, or in rare cases that the tumor metastasizes. In those instances, we have to treat with chronic phosphorus and calcitriol, much like we do in X-linked hypophosphatemia. And again, those can have long-term complications. It's hard to comply with the multiple daily regimen of the medication, and you have to monitor with serum and urine studies every three to six months to make sure that you don't develop nephrocalcinosis, which can also cause renal failure eventually, and calcify other tissues. So the long-term complications have to do with the therapy. So let's talk about your study in which you found with berosumab. Um, how was it used and what did you find? So what we did is we enrolled 14 patients that either had tumor-induced osteomalacia or another rare syndrome that's caused by excess FGF23 called epidermal nevus syndrome or ENS. And we enrolled people with tumor-induced osteomalacia, only those that Either you couldn't find the tumor or those that had tumor but it was incompletely resected or not able to be resected because of its anatomical location. And those would be people that would qualify for chronic phosphorus and calcitriol therapy. And in fact, those people had been on chronic calcitriol and phosphorus therapy. 
So we enrolled those people in a trial. And what we did is we wanted to look at phosphorus, 125D, osteomalacia, and some other endpoints like physical functioning and quality of life. And the trial design was basically, we took these people, we washed them out from their trial and phosphorus, and we put them on borosumab, and that we gave them a subcutaneous injection once every month. And their dose was selected based on how much we needed to get that serum phosphorus into the normal range. So their doses ranged from 0.3 to 2.0 milligram per kilogram. And what we did in this study, which I think was very powerful, is we flanked that 48-week treatment period with bone biopsy to look at osteomalacia. We did a pre-treatment bone biopsy, and then 48 weeks into treatment, we did a post-treatment bone biopsy, and now we're in a two-year extension. So what we found in this clinical trial was that we were able to get most of the individual's phosphoruses into the normal range and keep them in the normal range throughout the 72 weeks that we've reported so far. In addition, treatment with perosumab increased the 125-hydroxyvitamin D, got that into the normal range, and it stayed in the normal range as well. In addition, that phosphate wasting at the level of the kidney resolved, and the TMP-GFR, which is a marker of that, also improved. So a mineral metabolism issue seemed to improve. Phosphorus went up, 125-D went up, urinary phosphorus excretion dropped. Then when we looked at those bone biopsies, pre and post, what we also found was there was improvement in osteomalacia in those individuals that had osteomalacia at baseline. So the osteoid volume, which is that protein that's not mineralized, that sits on the bone surface before it becomes mineralized, that is in excess in people with osteomalacia. That reduced, so the osteoid volume came down, the osteoid thickness came down, and the mineralization lag time came down. So there was improvement in osteomalacia. In addition, we looked at their physical functioning and what we were able to test that using a sit-to-stand test. And as I mentioned, these people are very affected by myopathy, and they're very weak. And what we found is that with borosumab treatment, that there was a statistically significant increase in the number of repetitions they were able to perform in a sit-to-stand test. And then when we asked them about fatigue and pain, there was a statistically significant reduction in their fatigue. We looked at quality life with an SF36, and we found that there was a statistically significant improvement in their physical functioning score and in their vitality. So the treatment seemed to improve the mineral metabolism in these individuals, improve the osteomalacia, improve physical functioning, and improve their fatigue and improve vitality. What's the tolerability of borosumab? Dr. Immel? In the general clinical program, it's been highly tolerable. One thing that's been noted in the children more than the adults is uh, injection site reactions, which are usually transient, lasting from an hour to a day or so uh, most of the time. Um, that are mild injection site reactions occurred in about half of the children receiving borosumab in this trial. But overall, uh, generally, the drug has been fairly well tolerated. So, Dr. Jean de Boer, what's next, and is there anything else that we need to be concerned about? The next step here is seeking FDA approval to be able to use borosumab in tumor-induced osteomalacia. Um, and we're in the process of continuing the study and doing those studies to be able to seek that approval. But I think there's a larger issue here that I would really like to see addressed in the endocrine community and in the bone community. 
and that's really having people understand the role of phosphorus in skeletal health and in general health, but also to know what the clinical symptoms and signs are of hypophosphatemia, because they can be relatively enigmatic. They can be missed because they're not very specific. And have people realize that they need to order a phosphorus. You have to order it separately. It doesn't come on a regular chemistry panel. So I'd really like to raise awareness about hypophosphatemia and urge physicians to think about it and order it to then facilitate diagnosis of people with these rare disorders, but who can be treated. I would love to eventually have the phosphorus added back to the chemistry panel as it was included 20 years ago. And I think this would go a long way to reducing the morbidity and mortality that these people see after going years and years and years of being undiagnosed because no one thinks about ordering a phosphorus. Dr. Immel. Burismab was approved in the United States for treatment of both adults and children with excellent hypophosphatemia in 2018. And the paper we presented was, I think, an important step because it compares what we know about conventional therapy to what the gains uh, are in an active comparator trial uh, with burosumab. I think there remain several unanswered questions in the long term, which include what are the net effects of burosumab on final height if you're treated during growth? Are there any effects of burosumab on some of the other complications of XLH besides bone pain and muscle weakness and fractures? And what are the long-term effects and the long-term safety? So among other things, we're engaged in a very long-term observational study to try to capture a lot of that. Thank you both for taking the time with us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. To learn more and to see links to the abstracts Dr. Zimmel and Jean DeBoer presented, visit this episode on our webpage at www.endocrine.org podcast. There, you can also listen to our previous episodes. You can find Endocrine News Podcasts on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to leave a good review. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.